stand with us and open it up to Exodus chapter 5. This morning's reading will be verses 1 through 23. Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 23. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was a straw. When there was straw, And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants, and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Who is the Lord? How does he work to free his elect? That is, how does he operate to free his people, those that are his? Moses was called by God, if you've been with us. He was called by God in Midian. God said, go, I will be with you. 
Remember that? I will be with you. He goes by faith and God nearly kills him in route. Do you remember that? Having neglected to circumcise his son, which was the covenant sign of God's promise. God puts him in an incapacitated state. Whatever that was. It was sickness unto death. His wife intercedes, executes the procedure as the blood of their son serves as an atonement, sparing the life of Moses from the judgment of I am. We learn that God is very serious about what he says. The stage is set for Moses to meet Pharaoh for the first time. This is a different Pharaoh than 40 years earlier. And as as we study scripture, this is a reminder. It's not long before you realize that the Bible subsequently looks back to the exodus of Israel from Egypt as a kind of model for redemption. An archetype of deliverance. That's what the Exodus is and how it serves us today. Now, later prophets uh, would speak over and over again about a coming new Exodus, a greater Exodus, when God will fully and finally deliver his people, not from earthly tyranny, beloved, not from earthly struggles, not from worldly oppressors, but an exodus much, much greater. It's the exodus that Jesus was talking about to Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus pulled the veil aside, the veil of his glory. He pulled it aside, the veil of his humanity, that is, to reveal his glory to Peter, James, and John. And we're told that Moses and Elijah appeared there and spoke of his coming departure. Okay, that is his exodus. In Luke 9.31, the exodus he would accomplish in Jerusalem. So the book of Exodus is a type of that deliverance that Jesus has wrought for us and is working through us. A misreading of Exodus leads many to turn it into a book about social justice or about moralistic accomplishments or about ideal leadership techniques. I've heard my share of those. It's sickening. It's not about that. The Exodus is about the glory of God being made manifest. That's what the Exodus is about. It is primarily all about the one true God, I am, who saves, and the wonder and the grace and the power of his salvation. That is what Exodus is about. It's about God who delivers his people from one form of servitude and moves them into another form of servitude. Exiting his people from bondage 
enabling them, freeing them to enter into covenant union, creating for himself a worshiping people. Worshiping people. He creates that in us. He does that work. Let my people go that they may, what? Worship me. That they may worship me. That they may sacrifice to me. And that's a theme that comes up numerous times in Scripture. Sacrifice and worship, beloved, go hand in hand. Do they not? Sacrifice, worship. Sacrificial worship. And that becomes very obvious uh, throughout the Exodus because God's people will soon go on to slaughter a lamb. They will slaughter a lamb and then they will eat that lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts and the lintel as God's judgment passes over them. So that is a participation in the body of the lamb that was sacrificed. This morning, Christians, we will do the very same thing. When we partake of that table, to my left, we will partake of this table, and what's going to happen? What goes on there? Well, 1 Corinthians 10.16 tells us, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Here's a reminder for the church. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Answer is yes. So as God's people, here this morning, as participants, as worshipers existing for the glory of God, question this morning, what does this text before us this morning teach us about our God? No one has probably better summarized this chapter than John Calvin himself. Who says, and I quote, This passage teaches us that when God has begun to regard us for the purpose of relieving our troubles, he sometimes takes occasion to increase the pressure of our burdens. End quote. How many amens could I get out of that? (laughs) True, though we don't like it. God sometimes intensifies the darkness before he brings the full light of deliverance. God's presence does not, again, God's presence does not guarantee immediate visible results. As God's people, participants in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, We are the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. As recipients of grace, his presence does not guarantee immediate results. One one need only to think of Abraham, amen? Who was promised children more numerous than the sea, the sand of the sea. And yet he had to endure much before he and Sarah received that promise. 
Okay, I'm building up to this. That's what preaching is. You build it. You build. So you've got to follow. This is exposition. Once the child's born, did Abraham's struggles end? No. Oh, no. No, 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 no. He was told to do the unthinkable. Sacrifice the son he longed for and waited for. Well, God spared him. He provided the sacrifice. Showing us, once again, that the increased awareness of God's presence, of God's promises, and his involvement in Abraham's life produced challenges that he was not expecting. It's going to be no different for us. The same lesson is learned through the life of Joseph. This should be somewhat fresh in our minds. Having spent a number of months in the, uh, the story of Joseph, um, as the blessings of favor, that is the favor of his father, take a bad turn when his jealous brothers sell him off into slavery, which led him where? Into Egypt. 430 years before the account we just read. Falsely accused by Potiphar's wife of, of, of attempted rape. Imprisoned. Yet the scripture tells us, if you remember, that the Lord was what? With Joseph. The Lord was with him. And the, in, the, in the end, God's ultimate purposes are brought into view. In chapter 50 of Genesis, as his brothers stand before him in fear for their lives, Joseph says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Well, that led into something even greater. Under the providence of God and under the sovereignty of God, as we read Psalm 105, look at what we see. Verse 6, by the way, starts out like this. O offspring of Abraham, hear ye, hear ye, basically. In verse 16, it says, When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them. Who? Joseph. Who sent him? God sent him in his providence, who was sold as a slave. Verse 23, Israel came to Egypt by way of Jacob and his family. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham. Ham is another way of saying this part of Egypt. Verse 24, and the Lord made his people very fruitful, made them stronger than their foes, the Egyptians. And verse 25, he, God, turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. We scratch our heads. God did this? That's right. He's the sovereign. Does that erase human responsibility? No, not at all. Verse 26, he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. See the connection of the four? Abraham, Joseph, Jacob, Moses. In and through it all, God's presence, which was certain, did not mean immediate results. Psalm 105, those verses I read, covers a span of 430 years. Who's in control? Yahweh. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who rules and reigns now and forevermore. Who's in control right now worldwide? You see all the garbage on the news. You see all the horrific events in the news. Who's in charge? God. Who's sovereign? God. Any less sovereign? No. Who was it that was sent by God? 
receiving the greatest stamp of approval from God. Jesus, the Son of God. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. However, the Lord's ministry as that of Moses was beset with resistance both from the outside and the inside. Continually. You know, you would expect, I mean, I think we would expect that a a complete admission of defeat would be yielded up in the face of the incarnate Son of God. Not so. Things only heated up. Because we read in John 1, even though he made the world, Jesus created the word, spoke it into existence, the world did not recognize him. They rejected him. And But by the grace of God, you would still be rejecting him to this day, and there's some in here who are still rejecting him. So sometimes the Lord intensifies the darkness before he brings full deliverance. That's what Exodus 5 is telling us. And to know God is to come to know more about his ways. We might say it another way. God's purposes are often opposed, but never defeated. Ever. His will will be done. So this opening encounter now sets the stage for everything that will follow in this great Exodus account. So the biggest challenge for God's people that we will see, which is the biggest challenge for us to this very day, is that in all their forthcoming trials, their biggest challenge is to trust God. It's to believe His promises. So about 1450 B.C., God laid hold of this man, Moses, who will become the human instrument to lead God's people out of Egypt. And the chapter begins with a confrontation. God sends Moses. He sends Aaron. And notice, it's not to plead with Pharaoh. Okay, God doesn't plead with anybody. Right? Right, Ed? That's right, brother. No, he sends them to confront him as ambassadors of the king of heaven. To confront him. God apologizes to nobody. God's not afraid to step on anybody's toes. You get the picture? So notice the resistance and this struggle of arrogance. That's the first point. Resistance and the struggle of arrogance. This is what you were before Christ saved you. You resisted him in your arrogance. If you're here this morning, you don't know him, you're resisting him in your arrogance. You are a pharaoh at this point. Small p. <laughs> this is what I was. This is what you were. Verse 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. In other words, turn them loose that they may worship and hold a feast in my honor. Because I'm the one to be honored. But, verse 2, Pharaoh said, who's the Lord? Who is this Lord? Who is Yahweh? 
that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord. That's right, you don't. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Oh, yes, you will. Now, Pharaoh here, he's obviously drunk out of his mind with, with pride, the pride of his powerful position. We're intoxicated with pride. And God has to sober us up in a radical way. You know, perhaps he's thinking at this point, if this God of theirs is so great, they wouldn't be my slaves. If this God they speak of is so mighty, they wouldn't be serving me in my kingdom. They're in my kingdom. I own them. Right? Therefore, I'm a greater God than theirs, and Pharaoh was viewed as a God. The Pharaohs were. So Pharaoh was considered deity. And by the way, no one talked to a monarch like this. But Moses isn't speaking for himself, is he? No. Thus says the Lord, Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord. Now, compare verse 1. Notice, thus says the Lord to verse 10. Thus says who? Thus says Pharaoh. Thus says Pharaoh. That is to say, the real king and the real God will announce his word and we'll see whose word has clout. That's what's going on. So in the midst of the conf- in this confrontation... Blind to the naked eye, beloved, is that God is carrying out his sovereign work of loving grace. That's what he does. When he saves his people, when he delivers his people, that's a move of his sovereign, loving, merciful grace. And God rarely does things the way we expect him to do them. Amen? Rarely. Yeah, prayers get answered, but not the way that I've designed in my head. You know, salvation for people is easy. It's just you preach to them, and all of a sudden they're broken in heart. They're down on their knees crying out to God. Never happens that way. The, the experience of grace is never the way man supposes it to be. Many actually expel and dismiss that kind of thinking today. They, they create God in his ways in their own little finite mind. That's so foolish. I'm talking about Christians. Okay, so what do I mean? That God doesn't do things the way we perceive them to be. That is quite simply, death comes before life. Crushing comes before lifting up. In Deuteronomy... 32, 39, see now that I, even I am he, there's no God beside me. I kill and I make a lot. I wound and I heal. There's none that can deliver out of my hand. You know, you never read it the other way around. I make alive and I kill. No, I kill and I make alive. God is saying, when I come to a sinner, I deliver that sinner from captivity and the curse of damnation. This is what I do with him. I kill him. And I make him alive. I bring him down before I bring him up. I wound his heart so I can heal him. Like I crushed my son and raised him up, I crushed the heart 
so I can raise it up. No one can stop him because he comes to deliver his own with grace and with mercy. And we don't see it as that at the moment, oftentimes. Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Hosea 6, 1, he has torn us that he may heal us. He struck us down and he will bind us up. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? The opening words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom. Blessed is the man or woman who gives conscious awareness of their spiritual condition that they're morally bankrupt. If you don't think you're morally bankrupt, you've never been poor in spirit. Fully dependent upon the grace of God. And those he sovereignly, graciously brings low in order to lift them up, he does this to save their wretched soul. No one will be brought up from the grave unless they've been taken down into the tomb. Nobody. He'll never make you rich until he makes you poor, spiritually speaking. Not talking about economics here this morning. Spiritual truth. He'll never fill you until he empties you. He'll never lift you up until he brings you down to the dust. Such is the grace of God. Now, as God moves on sinners' lives in those initial stages of grace, when God is moving to bring to life one who's in the valley desert, dead, when he moves, Satan's control is threatened, greatly threatened, and, and Satan's rage increases. Amen? That's what Pharaoh represents. And here in this account, before God quenches the fire with redeeming love, the flames get hotter. This is what's going on. Pharaoh tightens his grip, attempting here to make their release impossible. He'll to go to every extent to do so. This is what Satan does in a spiritual sense. Knowing as we do, Satan never releases his captives until Christ himself breaks his grip. It's the power of God that saves, not man. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing you did to deliver yourself. I submitted my faith. Yeah, and that was a gift from God. Faith is a gift. Luke 11, I read from Mark's account this morning. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Jesus went on to say, who's ever not with me is against me. You can't love the world and Christ. You can't have both. You will love the one or hate the other. You be devoted to one and not the other. Now, this arrogance of Pharaoh, this arrogant resistance and opposition of Pharaoh towards Moses, which is opposition to God, not only come from those who 
are outside of Christ, it also comes sometimes from those who at one time professed faith in Christ. Did you get that? At one time they professed faith, who, who said, I am with him. But now the trend of their life as of late is something altogether different. They say now, who is this Lord? I say he's something else than what I was raised with. I say he's something else than what I've heard preached from the preacher. Why should I obey his voice? I've taken a different view of God. My view of God is this, which serves you and your sin, period. Make no mistake. Create God in your image, you're worshiping yourself. I'll go my own way. I'll call my own shots in spite of the profession I once made, in spite of the baptism that I once stood before everybody confessing his name, in spite of it all, I'll go my way. Who is this Lord? So such arrogance and disrespect doesn't only come from Egyptianized pagans. Sometimes it comes from those who at one time sat next to you pretending to worship. It's the seed of the sower, isn't it? The seed is the word of God, said Jesus. And the ground represents the hearts of people. And the sower goes out, and he sows seed, and some fell along the path. And the birds come, and they just take it away. That represents the devil just snatching it away. It doesn't even enter the ear gate, let alone the mind. Others fall on rocky ground. They have a little bit of soil. In other words, they hear the gospel, and they respond positively. This sounds great. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I'm a Christian. The sun comes out. Because there's no room for the root, it scorches it, and the sun represents persecution because you name Christ, wither, die. No root. Others fall among the thorns, which represents the cares of the world, the love of money, the love of this world, deceitfulness of riches, and it all proves unfruitful except the one ground that's good that goes on to multiply 30, 60, and 100-fold. Only one good type of soil. It reproduces something. Here in Exodus 5, God's people, they've already endured much, have they not, for 400 and some years now? But the temperature gets turned up. This is where you find out whose faith is real. 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, the majority of them die there. This generation doesn't even enter in. That's why we're warned time and time again about being deceived. The church is warned. Do not be deceived. Persevere to the end. So God's redemptive work here is actively begun. Things don't get better. They only get worse here at this point. And again, the biggest challenge is not going to be Pharaoh. It's not going to be the taskmasters. It's not going to be... Uh, keeping up with this impossible quota ordered by Pharaoh, the biggest challenge for the children of Israel, once again, is to believe God. This is our dilemma. See, this is why we need one another. I'll get to that in a little bit. Notice the second point. 
the result of arrogance, the result of Pharaoh's resistance, and it comes by way of attempted bondage in verses 4 through 19. Notice this, on the very same day that Moses marches in and says, thus says the Lord, in verse 6, notice, Pharaoh stated a new policy, right? He's, he's calling the taskmasters, which were Egyptian, and the foremans, the foremen in this account were Israelites that worked under the taskmasters. So no straw is given. So they would carry up the straw and bring it to the slaves. They would do this work. He says, get it yourselves. And the quota, by the way, remains the same. Production must not decline. Work, work, work. Now what they would do is they would mix straw here uh, into the bricks causing some type of chemical reaction that increased the strength and plasticity of the bricks so that they would hold their shape Uh, Otherwise, they tend to shrink or crack. So you needed it. It was essential for making these bricks. He says, we're not going to get your straw no more. Go get it yourselves. And the quota, it better be kept up with. In verses 10 10 and 11, we see the, the increased policy of bondage that's communicated. Verses 12 through 14, we see that it's suffered under in this narrative. Now, the foremen here of the Israelites were beaten. And in turn, they protest the policy in verse 15 and following. Pharaoh says, I don't care. Get back to work. Verse 18, again, produce the quotas. Get to it. And notice what the bondage consists of. Okay, this is bondage. Back in verse 3, they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may what? Sacrifice to the Lord. To worship. To worship. The bondage is work to keep them from worshiping their God. So in verses 8 and 17, Pharaoh picks up on this, and he responds, No, you're idle. You're making excuses. No, let us go and worship. No, you're making excuses. You're idle. Your people are idle. Is work good? Yeah, work is really good. You're created to work. Young people, you're created to work. Okay, you need to get a job if you don't have a job. If you're not looking for a job, you need to go look for a job. Look for a job till you get a job. And then when you get a job, work at the job and do good at the job. Work. Don't wait for them to knock on your door. You go knock on their door. Work. Work is good. Amen? Amen. Lazy people drive me crazy. (laughs) Work is good. Work is very good. But when work swallows up worship, it's bondage. Bondage. So Pharaoh views the Israelites as a, a quota to be fulfilled, God views them as subjects intended to render or offer up to him worship, sacrifice. This is what we were, crea- this is what we were recreated for, to render to God what is due his name, to worship him. In all that we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, in everything that we do, to the glory of God. So the bondage here consists of the absence of worship. 
So once again, beloved, God wasn't setting Israel free simply to set them free. He never sets people free simply to set them free. He was freeing them from one kind of service and into another. Let my people go. On the ground that Israel belonged to him. The reason God came after you, Christians, is because you belonged to him from before the foundation of the earth because that's when he wrote your name in his book of life. So at some point in time, he had to bring you to life. You didn't write your name in that book. Okay? You didn't one day wake up and say, I'm going to serve Jesus, so I guess he writes my name in his book today. No! Before the foundation of the earth, he wrote it in there, so in due time, he comes to his people, and Jesus speaks to Satan. He speaks to the law. He speaks to sin. He speaks to bondage. He speaks to all creation. Let him go. He's mine. Let her go. This is what he does. Let her go. The Father gave them to me. I chose them in everlasting love, and I bought them with my blood. Let them go. Omnipotent mercy and irresistible grace says to sinners who are dead in their trespasses and sins, held in darkness and in bondage, he says, let them loose, let them go. They are mine. They will worship me. Amen? Amen. So as the screws are tightened, as the burdens of pressure increase here in this account as the darkness intensifies God is working a work that will result in much much more than meets the eye it always does it always does I like what John Piper says about this in any one thing or any one event God is doing a thousand things and we just can't know them all He is working not just in the immediate circumstances, not just in the lives of the principal players, but God is doing things that we will not see finally with clarity until we enter into his presence and glory and see what he has always seen. Now, ignorance of that principle, blindness to that truth, leads to the next problem in the account. Notice we see that God's call of his people, those that he, I'm talking about Moses and Aaron, God's call of these men to serve him is not always easy for leaders in his church. It's not always an easy call. Moses and Aaron face opposition from Pharaoh and protest from the Israelites, verses 19 to 21, the Israelite foreman. They protest. Now, the foreman served as middlemen. They they were hand-selected by these Egyptian taskmasters to assist the taskmasters as kind of sub-taskmasters over their own people. So they had a vested interest in the system working well. 
So the tiny system that works so well is now disrupted by this straw situation or the lack thereof. The quota must be kept the same. And they go on now to verbally assault Moses and Aaron. And I'm sure they had a little payoff anytime they met the quota. They got a little bonus here or there. So this was affecting them, no doubt. So in verse 19, they recognize that they're in trouble. In verse 21, they say, hey, you know who the source of the trouble is here? Guys, let's talk about this. Let's huddle up. It's not the taskmasters. It's not Pharaoh. No, it's Moses. He's made us stink. That's what it is. So Moses and Aaron here, faithful to the call of God, are met with immediate rejection and opposition of the people of God. Lord, have mercy. This is an all-too-common refrain throughout redemptive history. Jeremiah rejected. I could go down the list, but we don't have time. So let's jump to Jesus. Nazareth rejected. Hometown rejected. So it often goes with God's prophets. But even so, God's glory will be highlighted even in the stubbornness, in the midst of the stubbornness of God's own people. But it's still hard on Moses. It's still hard on Aaron, as it often is on the servants of the Lord, those called to lead God's people. They come to realize oftentimes that sheep bite. And just so you know, I keep a pair of tooth extractors in my pocket. Not really. Don't be a sheep that bites. You dig? When I think of biting sheep, I think of Hebrews 13. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. There's enough pressure already. Okay, so let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would not be of advantage to you. Why? Because everyone suffers when their ministry is resisted. Don't resist the ministry. Amen? Nobody is here. I'm just, just in case there's some foreman in the corner somewhere saying, hey, you know whose problem this is? Don't go there. Amen? So when darkness is intensified or the increased pressure is wrenched down here on God's people, not only do we see arrogance, not only do we see resistance, there's also something else that comes into the picture which is common to us, and that's perplexity. In other words, confusion. When stuff like this happens, confusion sometimes sets in. So after Moses is turned on, By the Hebrew foreman, verses 22 and 23, he turns to the Lord. This is the right place to go. Now, he he, he dealt with resistance 40 years earlier with his fist, and he killed a guy. Buried him in the sand. Remember that? Now he turns to the Lord. This is wise. This is growth. This is maturity. So you can imagine how, how devastating it would have been after this encounter. He doesn't come to the Lord complaining, by the way. You know what he does? He accuses the Lord. 
He comes to the Lord and accuses him. He's angry with the Lord, but at least he flees to the Lord. Amen? At least he flees to the Lord. If you get angry with God, don't come to me about it until you go to him first. Amen? Go to him. If you're in him, you should be drawn to him. So if you get angry with him, because, you know, your, your time schedule, like that of Moses, you know, wasn't carried out the way he had intended in his mind. God had a different time frame. If you get mad at God, then go to him. That's what Moses does. So the, the accusation comes in the form of a question. This is pretty slick. Uh, that assumes that, that God must answer for having done something wrong. Why have you done this evil to this people? In other words... You know, Lord, the way I would, I'm more compassionate than you are. (laughs) Beware when you think you're more compassionate than God. Can I get a witness? (laughs) Have you ever been confounded, okay, perplexed in the midst of darkness, in the midst of this kind of circumstance, while you're under the pressure, unable to put everything together, confused because of the way God is doing things. Everybody at one time. Shake your head, yes. Forward, backward, yes. We all, can, we all understand this, right? Now, in one sense, Moses should have expected this because God told him what? Pharaoh's going to resist. I'm going to harden his heart. He's going to resist. He should have known this. He knew this. But there's certain things we know. We know these things in an intellectual sense, but when the difficulty comes, we don't know. What we claim to know. We don't know what we got an A on in that class about what we thought we knew. Amen? In the midst of difficulty, we really don't know. We can know by way of assent, intellectual assent, with regard to certain truths, but when we're crunched, we have a tendency to lose sight of them. God can spare your marriage. No, he can't. Really? Can God raise Jesus from the dead? Well, of course he can't, because he did. Can God bring unbelievers to resurrection life? Well, of course he can't, but he can't save your marriage? Um, well... Amen? We know and we embrace God's truth by faith, but when it comes to the time of struggle, we have trouble living by that faith. We know, but we don't know. Perplexity sets in. Confusion takes over. We respond like Moses, Why did you ever send me? Why did you ever send me? Verse 23. For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. I'm more compassionate than you, God. I wouldn't do it like this. How could you do this? Have we not said that? Have we not said that? Lord, how could you do this? If we're honest, we've at least thought it. You're no more of a saint than Moses. I mean, positionally, yes. We're all on equal ground. Amen? You'll never serve like this brother or have to go through what this brother went through. 
Amen? Lord, if I were God, I would not do this. That's basically what he's saying. Now, I must say this. There are those who are supposed Christian teachers in modern evangelicalism of our day who say, you don't have to go through this kind of struggle. You don't have to go through this kind of doubt. You don't have to struggle in prayer. You don't have to cry out, why, Lord? You don't have to cry out, how long, Lord? You don't have to wait on his timing because they say he's given us authority over sickness, over disease, over money. So instead, all you have to do is just declare it in the mighty name of Jesus. Don't listen to those charlatans, my friends. That's nonsense. The prosperity gospel is nonsense. It's heresy. And some, some go so far as to say, as I've heard on television, you don't have a God in you. You are a God. Really. Tell that to God on the day of judgment. God's true people, those who've been met by God, those who've been redeemed by the one true God, will experience perplexity in the midst of darkness. They will cry out, how long, O Lord? They will cry out, why, Lord? Because all the true saints have done so. Amen? Now, Moses was wrong to accuse the Lord. But he's revealing here what we often do when we don't like God's providence. We blame God. And we take our timetable and our little time book and we lay it up next to his. And we say, you have failed. Right? Notice how the Lord gently, lovingly responds to Moses Chapter 6, verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. No hard rebuke. He didn't slap him down. Didn't beat him down. The earth didn't open up and swallow him. Amen? God is very merciful. And when the proclamation of Christ's saving grace is proclaimed, Satan is outraged. And as this very narrative seems to show, it seems to reveal for us the method of his destruction. And that is an attempt to put people to work. Now I'm speaking spiritually. Okay? Follow me. He deceives them into making bricks, if you will, in order to build steps, if you will, upward and ascending to some altar of worship. Some altar of worship. Because whoever you are and wherever you are, right now, within earshot of this message, around the world, You will serve somebody. You will serve someone. Bob Dylan knew that. Bob Dylan said this. Everybody's got to serve somebody. 
You may be an ambassador to England or France. You might like to gamble. You might like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Long before Dylan, there was the Apostle Paul. Who said the same thing? In uh, Romans 6. Do I have it up there? Verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, having become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. Dylan left a few things out. But you get what the dude's saying, right? It's true. Everybody will serve somebody. Paul is saying service must be rendered because man was created with an inherent need to serve somebody, to sacrifice to somebody, to worship somebody, to worship something. We were made sacrificial creatures, friends. No one is autonomous. No one is sovereign. No one is independent as much as anyone may think they are. Nobody. Everybody serves somebody. You were created to serve God. But because of the fall, because of the fall of man, because we're in Adam, the desire for service to something greater than oneself has been corrupted. So therefore, we serve sin. We serve the flesh. We serve the devil, which takes many forms. Deliverance, required and you cannot deliver yourself you can build as many bricks and work as hard as you want to build and create your own religion throw a little jesus in there sprinkle a little little of the lamb of god in there but the rest of the way is paved by your philosophy you i speak generally pharaoh said you have service to render to egypt get to work Serve. Yahweh says, that is correct. They have service to render, but it's not ultimately to Egypt, but it's to the Lord their God, their deliverer, their savior, their king. It's his yoke they must wear. You know, everybody wears a yoke. You know what a yoke is. A yoke in biblical time, or even to this day, a yoke is something you place over the, around the head of an ox so that he can pull a cart. It's a yoke. You're yoked to something. Everyone wears a yoke. Everyone in here wears a yoke. Jesus has a yoke. Satan has a yoke. The world has a yoke. The demands of your friend and your little subcultures have a yoke. 
Everybody wears a yoke. Everyone carries a burden. The question is, what kind of burden? The question is, whose yoke are you bound to? Jesus, using Exodus language, okay? I'm wrapping up. Exodus language said this. Come to me. Come to me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. That's why he didn't crush Moses when Moses accused him. Gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your what? Souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Again, Jesus has a yoke. Pharaoh had a yoke. Satan has a yoke. Sin itself has a yoke, and it takes many, many forms. Your friends outside of Christ pulling you down, they're a yoke. Your drugs are a yoke. Fornication is a yoke. Homosexuality is a yoke. Only Jesus' yoke is easy. Only his leads to freedom. We have God's commands, amen? Is that a yoke? God's commands, the scripture says, are not burdensome. Why? Why are they not burdensome for us? Because we have the Holy Spirit. They come accompanied with the Spirit of God, which enables us to walk in union and fellowship with God. Enablement from the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the risen Christ, who enables us to please and to honor, to worship and sacrifice to our Lord, because he sacrificed his body and shed his blood for us. To close, if you're here and you don't know him, he demands faith. You can't create it. That's what he demands. Faith to believe. He demands repentance and he demands righteousness and you're impotent. Powerless to produce repentance and righteousness. He demands a sincere heart. You're a hypocrite. You're surrounded by hypocrites, but they happen to be redeemed hypocrites. And our desires to no longer be a hypocrite because we're in union with the one true God. Amen? Amen. All of this, all these demands are impossible without grace. When we hear the demands and we reject him and resist him as Pharaoh did, we begin to religiously attempt to create him in our own mind. We create our own religion, our own theology, and our own way of salvation. And it leads to death, greater slavery. Never to be free. And you never will be free unless Christ sets you free, and perhaps he has you here today to set you free, to take his yoke, to learn from him, to be set free, or you will remain in bondage. But you must be struck down before he'll lift you up. You must be wounded before he will heal. You must be killed in order to be brought to life. Blessed are the poor in spirit.
who realize their spiritual bankruptcy, theirs is the kingdom.